You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. I thought I'd have to choose between an IT degree and certifications until I found WGU. There I earned both through one program. WGU prepared me to earn certs from CompTIA and others at no extra cost. WGU IT bachelor's and master's degrees have no set class times. Rather, students progress at their pace, completing as many courses as they can each six-month term. I graduated faster, and you could too. Learn more at WGU.edu. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Professor Rachel Krastel. She is a historian of modern Europe. She is on the faculty at Xavier University. Most importantly, I guess we should say, she went to Indiana University, where she was a Herman B. Wells scholar. She studied history, French, and mathematics. We'll ask her about that. She's on the Leaders and Legends podcast today to discuss her book. It's new. It's fabulous. It's about an event that I believe doesn't get near enough credit for shaping the modern world, including 2023. The book is titled Bismarck's War, the Franco-Prussian War and the Making of Modern Europe. Professor, how are you? Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for writing your book. I devoured it. It was terrific. Uh, I don't understand why this isn't talked about more. I'm obviously there's been some pretty significant books written about it. Michael Howard, I think kind of set the bar years ago. And then Jeffrey Vavro, I think wrote a book about it because he also did the Austro-Prussian War. Um, tell us a little bit about your background and, and why it led you to put your knowledge to paper. Well, thank you so much. And I appreciate your kind words about the book. You know, I started getting interested in the Franco-Prussian War back when I was an undergrad at IU, and I was taking a class on French history that took us from France from 1870 to 1945. And so it was really walking through this era that is so foundational to European history and to the Europe we even still have today. And I'd be became fascinated by the fact that um, that during that time, France, you know, France had already gone through so many different revolutionary changes. And I was trying to figure out, you know, why they did that. And I became interested in 
the, the world wars, of course, World War One, World War Two. How could they happen? How could Europe have walked into that? But what I realized is I had to go back in time. If I was, if I wanted to understand those wars in the 20th century, I had to understand what happened in 1870, 1871 in particular. So the war between France and Germany. I ended up going to graduate school at Yale. I studied um, uh, French history there with John Merriman. I went and researched across France, and I was at first interested in how civilians after the Franco-Prussian War in France dealt with the fact that they'd been defeated. But then later I was like, I want to understand what happened during the war itself. And so to me, the interest is, um, how did this event shape the map of Europe and shape um, particularly the German Empire and the French Republic, both of which emerged out of this conflict and sets us up for World War I and then, of course, uh, for World War II. And I also wanted to understand what was it like to be a civilian to live through this conflict, right? This conflict touched millions of lives um, through towns and villages and cities, including Paris, across France. There were um, They suddenly had to confront having a war on their very doorsteps. How do they even deal with that? And so those were the questions that drove me. I ended up writing a, a couple of books on this, um, this war um, after graduate school. I, I started at Xavier in 2005, where I've taught ever since. Um, and then um, decided to write a, a book that would really uh, encompass the entirety of the Franco-Prussian War and, and tell that story, tell the story of the sol soldiers and the civilians in that conflict. You mentioned the multiple revolutions France uh, experienced, 1789, 1830, 1848. And probably, there's probably multiple arguments in between all those years. and and. Uh, taken to the uh, barricades. What is it, in your opinion, why is France, excuse me, why was France so prone to these, these, these kind of grassroots level outbursts? Well, it's interesting. Once you start that revolutionary process in 1789, it's just, there's so much back and forth, right? They, they were trying to figure out something that hadn't been figured out before. When, when the French looked at the United States, they thought there's no way you can have a democracy you know, in Europe, because the, they saw the United States is really small. The population was tiny. It was right on the eastern seaboard, right? Um, France was huge and it was very powerful. And so to topple a monarchy and then set up on something new, it just couldn't be done immediately. There were so many deep roots. And so it's a generations long process between, you know, the, the idea of on the one hand, do we need a, a monarch, a leader who is hereditary? On the other hand, should we have um, a more empire, uh, an, an empire with a, a strong leader like a Napoleon, you know, somebody who's not a monarch exactly, but who ends up um, yielding this influence, kind of coming out and drawing on the strength of the people? Or should we set up some kind of a democratic republic, um, a, one where the leadership changes, uh, one where there's some people have a vote or a voice, though exactly what that looks like is really up to debate. Um, so there's just so many different possibilities. And for the French, it was um, they had a strong sense of um, that they want to participate in this in in their government. And but, you know, there's so many different options, you might say, that that it becomes uh, over and over again. There are different moments for for contesting exactly what that looks like. What do you think? If anything, the French learned with each successive revolution. I mean, they didn't they didn't execute the royal family in 30 and 48 like they did in 17 is it is it 1791 792 when Louis the 16th gets executed. January of 17 very January 1793. 1793, okay. So then that's after the battle of Valmy where they do so well. So what did they learn? They're like, well, you know, in 1789 we did this, but maybe this time we should do something different and as it goes on through the 19th century. You know, different generations learn different things. I mean, and that's one thing I love about 1870, for instance, is that the people who are by that time in their 40s and 50s, they were the ones who were 20 in 1848. So they under they had been through something. They had seen what it meant to, you know, establish a republic and then have it overthrown by a strong man. You know, they had back in 1848. People don't know about this as much, but it's a time when um, when they established a republic. Three years later, the president they had elected overthrew the republic and then ended up being Napoleon the Third for. 20 years. And so so they had lived through those moments. And so they were thinking, okay, we want to be, um, we don't want to, you know, they were a lot more um 
I don't want to say conservative exactly, but they were like, we we don't want to have like a social revolution when we establish our republic. We want it to be really just a revolution in terms of the government. Um, and that also caused some tension in the 1870s. But um, so I do think that there was some learning about just the um, the amount of change that you can make happen in a very short amount of time. Um, more people were willing to say, mm, let's let's slow down that change. How did the revolutions in France and sort of the intellectual aspect of it influence the, the rest of Europe? Um, it was it was uh, across Europe. And again, I'm thinking about 1848 in particular. Right. You know, there were a series of, of revolutions in the spring of 1848. The notion that the people have a say, should have a say in how their government is structured and run um, became very powerful to people. And what, what shifted over time is that at the start of the 19th century and coming out of the French Revolution is the idea that uh, a government that is um, elected by the people um, is was very much aligned with the most radical you know, left forces, right? So they were anti-church, um, right? They were anti-noble, um, and then by the middle of the century, after 1848, and after the failure of, of most of the aspects of 1848, there starts to be a change to say that actually um, you can have um, you can have a, a popular type of government, but one that has a much more conservative bent. And that's what um, there there there's where you see Bismarck or you see Cavour in the Italian states mm -hmm. really starting to say actually there's a different way that we can form a national state. We can have a state that is based in the people that and that we think of as members of a nation rather than those who are solely just subjects of a monarch, although that they wanted to keep that part, that you can see them as members of a nation, but you can say you can have it be a more conservative type government. So one that that meshes national sentiment with still having a strong monarch. And that's the model that Bismarck built in Germany. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is Dr. Rachel Crestel. We are discussing her marvelous incredibly well-written book, Bismarck's War, The Franco-Prussian War and the Making of Modern Europe. You mentioned him just a few minutes ago. He's he's famous for many things, most likely uh, for tourists widening the streets of Paris. But Napoleon III, he was uh, the great Napoleon's nephew, I think. Is that right? And he came to power as part of this 1848 revolution, but uh, sharing power wasn't something he was kind of kind of interested in. Tell us a little bit, please, about the effect of Napoleon III on France during this time period. You know, he's an interesting character because he does come to power first through election, then by coup. That is to say, overthrowing the Republican institutions that were in place, um, you know, getting rid of those who wanted a republic and the um, the uh, various uh, politicians who 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 opposed who, who opposed authoritarian rule. He established a very you know strong uh, authoritarian presence, and he was very interested in the free market. So he was interested in investing um, in. Uh, uh, in investing in industry, you know, as it was growing in France, um, many areas benefited economically from his policies. He established free trade with Britain, which was almost unheard of at the time, but that kind of ushered in a different era of how we understand um, that goods and, you know, should be sold. Um, he always felt haunted by his famous uncle. Um, he never had the military success that the great Napoleon had. He tried in Poland. He tried in Mexico. Um, he often was diplomatically uh, outmaneuvered. Um, he had, you know, some successes in Italy, but not really, you know, he, he gained the territory of Savoy, for instance. But but um, there, that was, um, he never felt like he had, like, the great army that he wanted to have. So, as we head into the 1860s, so by this time he's already been in power for um, over 12 years. He's starting to um, to to he's trying to react to the growing um, power of civil government within France, um, newspapers, coffee houses, universities, right? All of these this like growing middle class that is saying, "Hey, we should have some kind of a role here." And again, that generation of 1848. Now they're in their 30s and 40s. You know, they would like to see something change. Um, he does loosen restrictions a little bit, um, but that just makes his position more untenable. Meanwhile, 
over in the German states, you know, Bismarck is is fighting several wars, uh, first um, against Denmark and then later against Austria, and he's successful. And it's really clear to anyone who's paying attention that um, Bismarck is trying to unify the German states except for Austria. Like he's defeated them. He's not interested in integrating Austria. He wants to create a Prussian-led German empire. And that France is probably going to be next, not because they're trying to defeat and absorb all of France, although, of course, they want to eventually absorb um, Alsace and parts of Lorraine into the German Empire, not so much because they're going to have a a war of territorial uh, conquest, but because this conflict can strong arm, persuade, negotiate the South German states that hadn't yet been part of it. Um, into a united German empire, particularly I'm talking about Bavaria, Baden, Württemberg. Bismarck. I don't know if there is such a thing as a Bismarck cult. If there is, I would like to be a member, an official member instead of an unofficial member. To me, if I had to do a Mount Rushmore of the most important leaders of the 19th century, Napoleon, Bismarck, Gladstone, Lincoln is probably my four. I, Otto von Bismarck was, was called a, a, a brilliant tyrant. He was clearly a master of diplomatic history uh, or diplomatic, uh, the art of diplomacy. Uh, tell us a little bit about your impression of, of Bismarck. And are you a, are you a cultist? I don't think I would go that far, but I would say what I find fascinating about Bismarck is that he was always maneuvering to take advantage of the situation that he was in. He didn't necessarily know exactly how he was going to unify the German Empire. I think, you know, he didn't have like each puzzle piece in place like in 1860, but he knew that he had to figure out how to build up the army. And he was willing to do underhanded things to do that, to direct funds to make that happen. He knew um, when he 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 could set up um, moments that he could then use against other states. So he could um, he he could know that he had you know some telling piece of information that he could release at a time that would be embarrassing for another leader, right? So he was really good at at sort of you know, that sort of uh, revenge is a dish best. <laughs> right? He was all about that. Um, he knew he knew how to tweak um, the French in the summer of 1870. Right. Like he understood that um, as the war crisis was starting to heat up, you know, he knew how to use the French press. He knew that some of the French leadership had gotten over their skis and that he could um, they couldn't backpedal very well. And so he made sure that um, that sort of tense wording got into the press because um, he knew they wouldn't be able to walk it back. So he was really smart about those things. Um, and um, and so he and then and then during the course of the war, and I know I'm getting a little ahead of the story, but just to sort of sure. get the man, um, he knew when to push um, the king, uh, King King William, you know, who became Emperor uh, William the first, Wilhelm the first the German empire, he knew when to put something in front of him, when not to, and to just sort of have a fait accompli, like exactly what the wording would be around the declaration of the German empire. He knew how to, um, how to play Bavaria against Baden when it came time to negotiating their entry into the German, um, empire. So he was, he was very smart about that. Now he faced, uh, a huge challenge with Moltke, uh, the uh, the great chief of staff. But um, so he was not without uh, rivals and not without um, people who could really um, take him on um, within within Germany. But um, but he was he was quite the brilliant strategist. The first war, there's there's the wars of German unification. Otto Flanz's books are the best for that period, at least I've read them years ago. And then there are several other books on the same topic. Uh, uh, Prussia and Austria fight Denmark over Schleswig-Holstein. And Prussia gets Schleswig and uh, Austria gets Holstein. Then in 1866, Bismarck, I don't know if he provokes the war, but he, he played 
he played precious. Let me ask this as a question because you're the expert. In my view, did Bismarck play Prussia's role or perception as a parvenu to excellence? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was always um, able, like, to to surprise. I think Austria. Uh, um, in that moment, they were stunned by how poor their performance was. Everyone expected that Austria would be much stronger than they were, but they complete, ended up being completely disorganized with poor leadership. Um, so, yeah. But and Prussia was always thought of as the weakest of the five great powers. Mm-hmm. Russia, France, Great Britain, mm-hmm. Prussia, Austria. And, and so Bismarck, in my view, played off of that and allowed Prussia to be underestimated. Uh, it comes to a head in the Austro-Prussian War, which is starts in 1866. The, the, the dispositive battle is called Sadawa. That happened on July 3rd, 1866. And it's to me, I did a t- history TV show, and the topic was the, the, the 10 most under most important battles in world history. I was the only one to have that on my list. And to me, the Battle of Sadawa is the most important battle of the 19th century in Europe. So important that Napoleon III remarked after the battle, speaking of France, it is we who are defeated at Sadawa. Hmm. You know, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, without it, you can't set up the battles of the Franco-Prussian War, right? So I would say, you know, Sedan, maybe Gravelot, um, uh, which we're on the anniversary of mm-hmm. right now. But, um, but, but I can see that argument for sure because if it goes the other way, the history of Europe is completely different, right? If suddenly exactly Austria right is is um, is victorious on that day. Or 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 isn't defeated so soundly, right? So that they can't. They're. I mean, they're basically out of it now. You know, they they don't want to intervene in 1870 because they're like we're too weak to do that. Um, and you know, then suddenly Prussia is obviously ascendant. And you know, if if Prussia had lost that battle, thank God for uh, Crown Prince Friedrich for showing up there at the end of the day or towards the end of the day. But if Prussia loses. Bismarck's probably gone. He's toppled. You don't know if if how much land the Austrians are going to take. And if Austria decides because of this victory or this, you know, made up victory, if it had turned the other way, this counterfactual, to decide to stay in German affairs, that alters the entire history of the Balkan crises that happened in the early 20th century. Absolutely. But we we digress. (laughs) That's why I think it's so important. So 1866 is the Austro-Prussian War. Prussians win a decisive victory. They then create the North German Confederation. They exclude Austria from German affairs, basically, but they take no territory because Bismarck didn't want to create this animus. Mm -hmm. So between 1866 and the start of the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, what's what's happening between these two countries? Um, So... So really, um, there's just an increasing uh, sense of tension. They they both kind of know, and observers know, including you know places like Russia, Britain. They they know that this is kind of the next conflict that's likely to emerge. And uh, Napoleon the Third um, undergoes some serious challenges in terms of his uh, his authority within France. Um, he has a plebiscite to ask whether he should, you know, whether whether the constitutional reforms that he's put in place should be continued, yes or no, which, of course, um, which people are in a bind then because they don't like him as a ruler, but they like his changes. So they <laughs> say yes, um, even though in Paris they say a resounding no. Um, and the French are trying to figure out what their move might be. They don't really have any good war plans, though. They 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 have a few different feelers. Most of them depend on trying to entice Austria or maybe Italy into joining a, a, a war against Prussia. Um, they they understand that uh, you know the their ideal would be to kind of plow east and that and then they would have um, Austria or Italy join in against um, Prussia. They don't really imagine that war is going to come to their own doorstep. That it's going to be primarily in France, um, all except for one small insignificant skirmish ended up being in the territory of France. Um, France also is less 
let's uh, let's talk about their armies. Um, the Prussian army by this time was very much about conscripting the entirety of eligible men. Um, by age, they had to have a certain amount of service, and then they entered into the reserve so they could be called up. They had a, a minimal amount of training, but they that was very effective for being able to, to create a strong, um, a very large standing army. On the French side, um, they relied on having um, longtime servers, so people who had been in the army for decades. And their promotion into being, you know, the the marshals or the you know the top tier generals um, tended to be much more about you know who you knew and connections, not so much about um, great um, great service. Furthermore, much of their experience compared to Prussia, who of course had just gone through two uh, major uh, major wars, most of their service was happening overseas as they were um, attempting to conquer broad swaths of Africa, for instance. And so the type of battle, the terrain of battle was very different from what they would encounter inside of Europe. And so, um, so when this, when, uh, I don't know if you want to get into like sort of the, how the war starts, but that, you know, when in the first weeks, as they're trying to mobilize, France is less organized and um, doesn't have as much of a plan for how you actually concentrate in one area. Whereas Prussia had Already, and even with its allies like Bavaria, who they'd been fighting just four years earlier, in <laughs> they'd strong armed them into being on their side now. They had a fully integrated plan for mobilization and concentration. They saw these as multiple steps um, that could that needed to be broken down and could be broken down. And it, while it was not flawless, I mean, there were definitely people going in the wrong direction sometimes. Um, it was far, far more efficient. Um, and their soldiers arrived. Uh, not feeling frustrated and tired from long marches back and forth, but from you know being sped to uh, near the battle through railroad and then concentrating um, on foot and being ready to fight. So that was part of that morale that the French experienced at the very start of the war was one of the crucial things that distinguished um, Prussia from France. Yes, I do want to talk about that, uh, how the war started, but your point, the point that you just made, the sort of the beginning of the perception of German military prowess, Prussian mm -hmm. efficiency. There's been several books written about it. Trevor Dupoy, Dennis Showalter, a lot of them. And, and some of them are more positive than negative. But would you say that it's it's during this time that the the reputation of Germany as basically having the best army in the world is cemented? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the the story is that leaders like, uh, you know, von Roon were sitting, the minister of war were, were kind of had their feet up as this was happening because it had been so well planned. They were like, this is this is less stressful because we were just making, you know, we're, we've wound up the clock and we're letting it unwind right now. It's it's happening just as we had planned. Now, obviously, that's an exaggeration, but they had because they had been through the the, the previous two wars, they had their call of cards ready to go. All you had to do was write in the date and send it out. You know, and this is of course, you know, there's nothing mechanical about this. Um so you had you had to have that set up. They invented the dog tag um during this war so they could better track soldiers. Um they again they used railroads. They had done mobilization games so that they, they could whittle their time for mobilization down, down and down. Um they they were very much planning for an, an invasion of France, so they didn't have to make it up as they went along. And all that was borne out with the war itself. And so countries across Europe and even you know in Japan and so on, they were learning from Prussia as a result of this war. I think I'd remembered in 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 school that the the French were over in Japan as their military advisors, but when the Prussians kicked the hell out of them, the Japanese got rid of their French advisors and brought Prussian ones. Is that true? Uh, I don't know for sure, but that sure sounds like the like it's accurate, <laughs> and, and like and that that fits that fits for sure. The French, for hundreds of years, were perceived and sometimes actually the preeminent land power in Europe, expanded the countries, uh, France itself from the Ile-de-France, excursions all over Germany, Italy, basically, you know, everywhere, low countries, Austria, Netherlands. Uh, why did they start to decay to such a situation where a country perceived to be as strong as France 
and most observers, correct me if I'm wrong, if I remember from my readings, thought France was going to win against Prussia. How did they get to the situation where they wa- lost a year, a war in about a year and a half? Well, I, I think there is um, both both the army structure, right, that I've alluded to, right, the, the leadership, the weak leadership at the, at the top. Um, Napoleon III just wasn't up to the job. He was himself very ill and had never been a strong military leader. The leadership at the next level, um, not only because they weren't, they themselves weren't extraordinary leaders, but they were, they were okay. They were okay, but they, um, right at the start of of the conflict, Napoleon decided to rearrange his leadership structure. And so they had to rearrange themselves on the fly and all their staffs had to suddenly move around on the fly. So that's hard to it's hard to have that rearrangement and then go into war a few weeks later right so that was a big change also the also again the the they they thought that having um long serving soldiers was going to be sufficient and in some ways it was and of course they had the the superior rifles um in the franco-prussian war Fran- uh, Chaspo. Yeah, the Chaspo. Uh, whereas the Prussians had the had the better cannon but the rifles really were better um than than what the Prussians had and so there were so in the key opening battles, things could have gone differently. The very, very earliest ones, which happened on August 6th, there are a couple battles on the same day in different locations, one in Lorraine and one in Alsace. The French fought well. The rifles worked really well. Um, they were able to, um, you know, to really defend against the, the Prussians who were um, invading France. But um, the Prussians were better able to take advantage of those moments. So like Prussian commanders, if they heard a battle happening, they would just march to the battle and they would join. And so throughout a given day, and this happened again and again, both on those August 6th battles and later ones um, later on that month, Prussian units would arrive as reinforcements and turn the tide. And French would be confused. They wouldn't necessarily trust their their um, subordinates to to make those kinds of decisions and march toward the sound of the guns. So there were there were there were close battles that could have gone the other way in that early those early days that didn't. So on August sixth, they lose both of the those two battles I mentioned. The the Prussians now suddenly have have you know banged the door down and they're marching into France. Um, a couple of weeks later, there were a series of battles that could have gone the other way um, if if. Prussian or excuse me, the French commanders had taken advantage of their uh, of their their positions. You know, in the middle of the day, they could have turned back the Prussians, but they didn't. You know, they didn't have either the creativity or they didn't have the you know the the right elan. Or sometimes they thought they had one, but they but you know, in a different sector of the battle, the Prussians had come on stronger. Um, there are there are, I I believe there are some key moments in those mid August battles that could have gone the other way, and at least even if Prussia had still Prussia still might have prevailed because they really did have this better structure and this better army, but um, but they might not have had such a sweeping loss so that they ended up losing that territory and the balance of power shifting so dramatically. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is Dr. Rachel Crashstill. She is the author of Bismarck's War, the Franco-Prussian War and the Making of Modern Europe. It's probably the most perfect subtitle I've ever read. Because if there was no Franco-Prussian War with the Prussians winning, there would be no modern Europe at modern Europe as we know it. You are a Hoosier and uh, yes, I am in sentiment, maybe let's say, if not residence. Is there a particular Hoosier leader or legend you admire most? Oh my gosh, what a great question. Yeah, I am a Hoosier born and bred. I grew up in South Bend, Indiana. I went to Indiana University. I lived in Indiana for 22 years. Uh, have landed in Cincinnati, so I'm just over the border. Um, Hoosier leaders that I admire. Um, well, you mentioned Abraham Lincoln before, and I think we can claim him uh, <laughs> as having lived in the state for a time in childhood. Um, uh, 
Well, and you mentioned Herman B. Wells. Um, I was a Wells scholar and his leadership of Indiana University throughout much of the 20th century was just absolutely incredible. I mean, uh, he brought um, just fantastic studies um, to to the state and built that into a world-class institution that I'm so incredibly proud um, to, to be a part of. You studied history, French, and mathematics. That's not the, uh, the troika I'm used to hearing. Why, <laughs> why mathematics, if I may ask? Sure, I, I minored in math, so uh, I would not claim to have, you know, taken it to the same degree as I did history or French. But um, I love math. I love it's a beautiful language. Um, it helps us to understand the world. Um, you know, people kind of groan at calculus, you know, sometimes. But but man, you can use calculus to describe, you know, the throwing of a football, or you know, uh, or or why a bridge is. Uh, a strong or not. I mean, it's it's an incredible um, way of looking at the world. So to me, I use it. I use that side of my brain. Um, uh, a lot of times I'm also an academic administrator. So I'm always looking at, you know, looking at the numbers, but also looking at the people, right? So I think my history and my math background actually helps me to support higher education. As we mentioned in the pre-interview chat, uh, my graduate degrees in medieval history, 14th century English history, and people will make fun of me, of course, because they should make fun of me for having such a um, opaque master's degree. And they'll say, does it even help you at all? And my answer is always the same. I write a lot of speeches. I write a lot. It helps me be a better writer. Does calculus and your math background help you become, help you be a better writer? I think what it, I think it appeals to this part of my brain that is very systematic about writing, you know, making sure that I've hit all the archives I want to look at as I think about um, writing like in chunks, you know, and so I don't think it's exactly the same thing, but I think that kind of uh, discipline approach um, helps you as a writer. It, it gives you, maybe you've had this experience, Robert, that like um, the more constrained you are in terms of what you have to write the easier it is to sort of be like, okay, let me, let me fill this out. Like if you have a, the worst thing I can do as a writer is have a blank screen with a cursor blanking on it. <laughs> <laughs> I would much rather say, here's what I've, I'm, I'm going to write today. Today, I'm going to describe this one scene, or I'm going to describe this one person, or I'm going to, you know, talk about um, the civilian interaction at this battle. And that, that kind of, um, that kind of systematic way of thinking, I think helps. We were discussing uh, Bismarck a few minutes ago. He is, he's probably, he's very famous for, for two telegrams, one he sent and one he received. The one that he received was, I think, in 1862 when he becomes chancellor. Is it is it Rune who sends him? Paracolum on Mora, the Peshevu? <laughs> I think that's right. And... Uh, which is uh, there is danger and delay. Hurry up! And that's when Bismarck comes and takes over the reins of the of of Prussia. And the second, the one he sends, is called the Ems Dispatch. It is a brilliant piece of of diplomatic and, and linguistic subterfuge, perhaps. But it's also another example. And you said it a few minutes ago, and it really struck me. It's an example, another example of Bismarck taking advantage of someone else's mistake. Tell us, please, for a few minutes about the Ems Dispatch, the Hohenzollern candidacy, and why these two things were so important to, I think, as Bismarck put it, raising, waving the red flag in front of the Gaelic bull. Yeah, so so um, it all starts in Spain actually, uh, where the throne for Spain was up for grabs. And the Prussians uh, proposed that one of the Hohenzollern family, uh, Leopold, be put on that throne in Spain. And of course, France did not agree with this idea. They did not want to be encircled uh, by by an enemy um, monarchy, monarchical family. It kind of goes back to their worry about Habsburg encirclement from centuries earlier, right? They, of course, don't they don't want to be have you know two sides by the same family, and so they opposed that, and they were able to um, convince. 
Prussia to walk that back and say, no, okay, we won't press this candidacy forward. But they had couched in such terms internally in France, both in the press and in their conversations, um, that it, it seemed, um, you know, that they uh, that they they wouldn't take anything other than a very excuse me a very firm uh, walking back for an answer. In fact, they demanded that they not only um, walk it back, but that they say you will never again propose this candidate or any other Hohenzollern for this throne. And that, you know, that went too far. It, it did, right? You can't ask a sovereign nation uh, to, you know, tell them what they can, can or can't do in the future. So, um, so this conversation happened between William, uh, King, uh, King William, and the French ambassador, who confronts him in the, or not confronts him, approaches him on the sidewalk in the in the town of Ems um, while he's on his summer vacation, basically. And William, from all accounts, you know, from 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 afar, you know, was observed to be very polite, you know, kind of in declining uh, to make to agree to that term that they would they would never again propose a whole and solar uh, for the throne. And at this point, France had won the diplomatic war. I mean, Prussia yeah. had was perceived not only internally, but externally as having been beaten diplomatically, diplomatically on this issue. Yeah. And David Wetzel is great on this, uh, on this, on this whole diplomatic, um, this whole di- diplomatic um, story. And so, but instead Bismarck, um, so, so the, so Bismarck takes the telegram that was sent account, you know, with the account of this, this rather polite de- decline, decline from the King and he truncates it so that he's not, he's not rewriting the words exactly. He's just cutting out all the politeness to it. So it sounds very, you know, he's, he's taking out you know, all those niceties that you add, you know, he's, he's Bismarcking it. Much. Yeah. Really appreciate you reaching out to me. Thanks for that question. Like all that's gone. And basically it comes down to, no, we're not going to do that. So this gets out to the French press. Well, Bismarck makes sure it gets out to the French press and it sounds, um, and, and again, the French internally had made the the Prussian position sound so negative that when this no comes, they, there's a, a feeling, especially the foreign minister, just simply cannot walk it back. He can't go back and say, "Oh, that's okay. We'll just move on." You know, they there there's there. It's it's just the emotions are too too raw, and so the French almost immediately um, vote in their um, their legislative core votes for war credits, and the declaration of war comes very soon after. We talked a little bit earlier about the mobilization and 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 basically how Prussia started started a bit ahead, for lack of a better term. I mean, they kind of took the trick at the beginning. And you mentioned his name. I've read a couple of biographies of Moltke. He is famous for saying, "No plan survives first contact with the enemy." Right. Which Mike Tyson turned to say, "Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth." And he doesn't, it's not that he's always outshined by Bismarck, but, but the wars last for just a few years, but Bismarck is still maneuvering. What was the relationship between Moltke, who was the head of the, of the Prussian army and, and Bismarck? You know, it's tense and it grows tenser as the war goes on. So for one thing, here's the thing about Bismarck. He loved to wear his reservist uniform and <laughs> and that just did not, you know, he he kind of wanted to claim more influence and as anyone would, right? That's the kind of like, you don't get to be Bismarck without, you know, fighting for power and trying to claim more power than you, you know, than you're given. You, you grab it, right? So he's grabbing, he's trying to grab for power. They also had different opinions on exactly how to bring the war to an end. So, so Germany, like, um, or, or you know how to how to continue the war. So Prussia has these successful early battles in in August. They eventually have they eventually roundly defeat the last standing part of Napoleon III's army at Sedan. The other part is bottled up in Metz. They're under siege, and at that point, which is September first, with the with the negotiations you know concluding on September second. Prussia thinks the war should be over. Bismarck basically says to, um, as he's negotiating the end of that, that battle, he's like, so are you are you surrendering 
completely or are you just surrendering your army and he he's hoping they're going to say we're surrendering completely but they don't they say we're just surrendering the army and he can't believe it nobody can you know and and then uh and so the so so the battle continues the war continues but bismarck and molka let me go back to that that question right molka understands that part of what he's going to do to to conclude the war is to bottle up paris and eventually you know he wants to um uh, he 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 wants to defeat the armies in the field. Bismarck thinks that you should bombard Paris, and by bombarding them, they will eventually concede and that they will admit defeat. He wants to wasn't, defeat. Is it fair to say one of Bismarck's worries is all these other countries have stayed out of it? The longer this war goes on, the more likely Britain, Russia, Austria come in as peace brokers. And they get to dictate the peace and Bismarck doesn't. And that's one of the reasons why he's like, look, we got to get this over and done with. Exactly. Exactly. And so and, and he does a lot of work during the winter of 1870 and early 1871 to try to prevent Britain from coming in and Russia. And they're trying like there, there's attempts at having like a using a, an existing um a conference to to then use that as a as an, a pretext for ending the war in France. He doesn't want that at all, and so so. But Moltke's like, we can't start bombarding Paris. We've got to build up the you know build up our um, our, our defenses around. We've got to dig trenches. We've got to slowly bring in the cannon. It's going to take us a long time for this to actually happen. And and, and Bismarck's like, why can't this be tomorrow? You know, like why can't this be? Right now? <laughs> so they had they, that's a that's a long fight. But I mean, honestly, the whole time, like anytime there's any kind of question, um, there's debate who's going to make the call, who's going to reach out to the French, and and you know the French government has has shifted around. So who's really in charge on the French side? And is it going to be Moltke's people or is it going to be Bismarck's people who are going to have that first contact? And William is trying to like keep both of these like great um leaders you know uh in check as as they go forward because i mean we have to make sure we say this unlike in the united states or other countries the head of the military didn't answer to bismarck right molka answered to the king right and in previous arguments for lack of a better term in other military slash diplomatic situations bismarck has prevailed right Right. And so but now Moltke um, is is sometimes getting the upper hand. We don't have time, obviously, to go through through all the battles, but I do want to mention Sedan Mm -hmm. only because it's at that battle that Emperor Napoleon III is captured. He surrenders as part of the army. He and Bismarck have a have a uh, interview afterward which bismarck of course treats him with the utmost um, reverence for lack of a better term respect um can you take us as best you can into the mind of emperor napoleon the third he he wants to be this military genius the successful military person he has some success in italy and i think in the 1850s late 1850s he haunted, as you said, by the, the memory and the achievements of his uncle, the great Napoleon. And now it's it, it's all over. Yeah. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's got does he have gallstones. Is it gallstones that he's got to deal with? He's got makeup all over his face. He can hardly ride a horse. What's he thinking as as he talks to Bismarck and he realizes, well, I guess it's it's all over. Yeah. I mean, he had been in power at this point. Um for 22 years. And so this is a really diminishing moment for him. Um, and, and he had kind of, it had started to dawn on him that things were not, you know, were coming apart as August went on in the middle of August, he was very indecisive about what the various moves should be. And, you know, they ended up at Sedan, which is, if you think about it, um, it's right on the border with Belgium. It's not really where you'd expect the next battle to be, but it's because of a series of, you know, waffling um, that they end up fighting in that particular location. And so the next day, um, and and the Prussians couldn't believe it when they learned that Napoleon III was actually there. They're like, how could he have been so foolish as to put himself in this position did we really capture him i mean they thought it was a joke um and so and so on that day uh, the morning of september 2nd um i can only imagine that for napoleon the third it was it was sort of a, a just a the end of a, a long nightmare um and then uh, you know he was freed on his own reconnaissance um he ended up uh, making his way to britain eventually um and, and dying just a few years later um but um yeah this was uh certainly 
um, certainly a you know the lowest point of his life. Two days later in in Paris, the the government learns of this defeat because it's not instantaneous instantaneous communication, although it's very quick with the telegrams and so on. Two days later, um, his he was completely overthrown. Uh, and they declared a new republic and um, and started to imagine what life would be without without him. And um, with the exception of the period of Vichy um, during World War II, France has been a republic ever since. We talked a few minutes ago about about the creation or the drive of Bismarck and others to create this this German empire, the Second Reich, a little different than the Third Reich, yes. but unfortunately gets lumped in with it a few times. And it's it's unfortunate because it's just like you can't compare the two, but I defer to you. Then the, the German empire is proclaimed in uh, what I think is the most beautiful room in the world, and that is the Hall of Mirrors at the Palace of Versailles. Did the German Empire, was it inevitable, the creation of this empire based on Prussian victories? It needed to be negotiated for it to take the role that it did. And again, I think Bismarck was key to that. Um, Yes, the Prussian victories solidified the um at various stages different territories coming under its sway and as you mentioned before it's it you know they didn't take territory from austria they incorporated schleswig you know like they had different pieces um but they all it all happened in different ways it wasn't just you know territorial conquest that you might imagine when there's like three wars toward unification it was much more about uh, convincing, negotiating, cajoling, you know, strong arming these different areas into saying, okay, th- are my best option right now is to join with Prussia, and whether it was the North German Confederation or the entire German Empire. So it it wasn't in- was it inevitable? No, because you have to have that you have to have somebody to actually make those negotiations happen. But if the king of Bavaria was it Ludwig mm-hmm. says no, I'm not going to join, that changes everything. Well, suddenly you have a different set of negotiations to make, right? Do you, are you, um, but, uh, but at that point, you know, Prussia after 1866 had basically put its, its people in place in the army, you know, um, and what, as at the the beginning of the conflict in 1870, as Bavaria was deciding, are they going to join the war or not? The decision point was, um, was, okay, if, if we, if we, don't join or we you know join on the other side and France loses we are absolutely going to be crushed but if we right if we join on the prussian side and France loses we're already we're on the the right side of things so uh, i think they were um they were taking a realistic look at what their choices really were so much of your book is is a discussion of what's happening uh, to the people of France in the towns and the neighborhoods, how they're how they're reacting to the invasion. I mean, France is used to being the invader, not the invaded. But in Paris, Bismarck gets his wish, and they do bombard. What was life like for Parisians during the during the siege and during the bombardment here in the Franco-Prussian War? I mean, you read stories about eating the horses out of the zoo and various other things. How did the average Parisian resident have to deal with things? Well, so by the time the bombardment starts in January, Paris had been encircled since mid-September. September 19th is when the encirclement happened. So Paris was under siege for over four months. Um, and it was one of the coldest winters on record. So the sun was freezing over. There wasn't a lot of food. They'd burned most of their firewood. They were, you know, there, there are only so many rats to go around, you know? So they're, so so they really are they really are in dire straits in terms of food. They're not completely to that point where there were there was uh, starvation, but there was malnutrition, which meant that more Parisians were dying of illness because of the cold uh, winter. So when diseases just kind of come in the winter, more are susceptible to it. Now the bombardment itself, um, the bombardment did not end up killing and wounding as many people as as many people as you might think, um, and it worked in the opposite direction than Bismarck thought. He thought that it was going to demoralize the the Parisians and make them give in. It actually made more of them say, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna be strong. We're gonna fight," you know. And so, but Parisians were very very 
um, torn. Some Parisians um, joined the National Guard. So you had men who were going home at night and then serving on the barricades during the day um, who were not really trained soldiers, but wanted to be part of the defense of Paris. You had some who, you know, fled the city, you know, before the the city was uh, closed. Um, You had some who uh, really wanted Paris to have its own political form. So as, you know, people are trying to figure out what the country is going to look like with the fall of Napoleon III, some of them said, we don't want a more conservative republic. We want a radical republic where, you know, everyone has a voice and meets every day. You have neighborhood groups that met sometimes every night, you know, to say our neighborhood is the most radical. So you have all these different ways of living through this siege, but it was very, very tough. Parisians, many Parisians felt like they had never given up. Um, and so by the end of the war, some of them were very frustrated because they felt like we we never really gave up. Our government gave up on us. Eventually, the war ends in 1871. The French, is it the Third Republic? Is that the Third Republic? <laughs> yep. Surrenders to the new German Empire. There's a large indemnity. Is it is it five billion francs? Yeah. Yep. And Bismarck decides for 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 purposes of German security to take Alsace and parts of Lorraine. The relationship between France and Germany is the determinant. Let me ask you, let me, let me say it this way. Do you think the relationship between France and Germany from 1871 until 1914, the summer of 1914, is the dispositive bilateral relationship of European history during that time? It is the crucial one around which everything is revolving, right? So over time, uh, event, you know, but here's another part of Bismarck's insight and genius is that he realizes at this point he's he's going to try to ratchet back some of the conflict with France. He's not looking for a fourth war. He's looking to say, okay, let's solidify our gains because he understands that right Germany fighting a two-front war is not going to work. <laughs> What's he say? We've made Germany, now let's make Germans. Yeah, exactly. And so that's the that's the aim here, is right? To convince all these Germans who, you know, many of whom had said, yeah, I'm part of this war, I'm, I'm supportive of this empire. But, you know, like, how long is that going to last, right? So there's schooling efforts, there's national holidays, and, and so on. There's Sedan Day, which becomes a national holiday uh, for a while. Um, and and so, and so that relationship is crucial, but I would never say that it, there's a direct line from 1870 to 1914. A lot of things had to happen. Certainly that tension is crucial, but um, most French in 1914 were not looking for revenge on Germany. Um, they they might still have wanted Alsace and Lorraine, but they weren't necessarily looking for war. There were all the other things, the, the other factors happening in 1914 that led to that war. Is it fair to say, and do you think it was a mistake, Bismarck didn't want, didn't take territory from Austria after the Austro-Prussian War in 1866 because he didn't want to create this lasting enmity. But by taking Alsace and Lorraine from France in 1871, he created a lasting enmity. Would you say now that was a mistake? And if you had been in the foreign office with him and Holstein and everybody else, like, you know, you're creating an enemy, an implacable enemy, which means we cannot antagonize Russia. And that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. I do think that that um, the taking of Alsace and Lorraine definitely um, didn't it didn't it didn't yield to the buffer. It didn't create the buffer that he really wanted because you still have that. You know, you're still right on the border there. Um, but it um, but it also created some long lasting uh, issues. And then Germany then had to send so many resources and so many people into Alsace to make it feel more German, right? So they put a lot of investment. They poured a lot of money into rebuilding Strasbourg, which um, which is a was besieged during the the War of 1870 and had been you know nearly destroyed. So they a lot of people, a lot of treasure, a lot of effort and went into rebuilding those areas that was probably not um you know, probably not necessary, could have been used in other ways. France and Russia eventually link arms and fight Germany and Austria. And there's a whole, I'm hoping to do a World War One podcast here pretty soon with Alexandra Churchill. I just read her book on George V during 
uh, King, British King George V during the war. World War One is so fascinating. It's so huge in Europe, and you know, kind of less so here in the United States. We kind of have our Civil War and World War Two, right. and there, there, it's it's so big. And I I found that one of my favorite ironies is maybe not ironies, but events is the fact that Napoleon III's wife Eugenie lived until the 1920s and she saw France avenged. Wilhelm II lived until 1941 and he saw Germany avenged after World War I. If the Franco-Prussian War, and sorry to put this on you, <laughs> Dr. Crestel, let's say the Franco-Prussian War, let's just say it didn't happen. Mm. How much different is late 19th century Europe? Well, it's incredibly different. You don't have a united Germany in the same way. Um, I think it would have been difficult to imagine something other than a war to bring the southern German states into um, together so that and that creates that united germany and although the balance of power was still very much a real thing um in the late 19th century clearly germany was the dominant on the continent right and then it becomes really a question is the land in germany more powerful than the sea with britain that becomes really one of the big questions in the early 20th century um so it just shifts everything about how we think about it uh, about um uh, you know, all the key questions in the geopolitics of the early 20th century. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Professor Crestel, are you ready? I'm ready. What was your first job? I was a hostess at a restaurant in South Bend. During getting paid extra during Notre Dame games? <laughs> Always a good busy time, for sure. <laughs> There's very few places as cool as South Bend, the campus, during during a Notre Dame game. You could hear it from my house. If there was a score, uh, you could hear the roar of the crowd. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> Were you there in South Bend during the, the kind of fat years under Holtz? Absolutely. Yeah, those were great times. Chris Zorich came on the podcast and had some terrific... So did... Um, um, I'll think of his name here in a second. Uh, Brooks, Reggie Brooks came on the podcast. They had terrific, terrific Holt stories. Number two, what was your first concert? My first concert was Paul Simon uh, when he did his uh, 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 his Rhythm of the Saints tour. Um, that was a that was a really fun concert for me. Number three, okay, now these next three are tough for hey. you. I'm just going to tell you. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. You can say Bismarck's War. I mean, Bismarck's War is pretty amazing. <laughs> um, that, that, that is a great that is a great book. I also really love, speaking of World War I, I love uh, The Great War and Modern Memory by Paul Fussell. It's an oldie oh. but goodie, classic, beautifully written. You just want to linger on every word. And when it's you go fun. over to Europe, you see all these, like, there's, there's for every World War II memorial or statue there are 10 world war ones it's so great war it's just so completely different over there amazing amazing you gonna stick with paul's i'm gonna stick with that one yeah number four if you could witness any event in history be there in person as it happens which event would you choose whoa that maybe the tennis court oath in 1789 when the french decide <laughs> they're not getting, during the french revolution the early days of it there's a moment where um, where Louis the Sixteenth brings the troops into Paris, and those representatives in the National Assembly who had said they were you know who were there to sort of discuss constitutional issues, they get together and they're, they're locked out of their building, and so they go to the tennis courts and they swear that they will not disband until they have actually addressed the, their questions and written a new constitution. It's an incredibly powerful moment. Neither neither execution it would be. Well, I mean. This? This was, no, no, I don't need to be there for that. But what it, about what about Robespierre's? <laughs> He's a challenging character, that's for sure. <laughs> Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? Wow, that that's that's a tough one. Somebody living today that I want to have a 
a chat with. Um, I always struggle. This this one is this one is really hard because there's so many fascinating people out there. Um, Plus, you love literature, you love music. If you like exactly. sports, if you historians, exactly, exactly. Um, we want it to be as tough as a as a crastal uh, midterm or final. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Hmm. Um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to go with Taylor Swift because she is just a fascinating personality. She's, she's almost single-handedly rescuing the American economy. Exactly. And she's, <laughs> she added, I think three shows here in Indianapolis in November of 24. And it absolutely dominated the news cycle like nothing else. That's for <laughs> sure. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest today has been Dr. Rachel Krastel. She is the author of Bismarck's War, The Franco-Prussian War and the Making of Modern Europe. If you want to understand why things are the way they are in Europe in 2023, read this book. It takes you, it gives you such a terrific perspective on attitudes, geography, military prowess, politics, diplomacy. It's a terrific, terrific effort. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Robert. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's Robert at VeteranStrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at LeadersAndLegends.net.